0: Hey everyone, Michael Gormley here, and I had the great privilege and honor of interviewing Dr. Abigail Favale. She used to be at George Fox, now she's at Notre Dame. Couldn't be happier for her to work for Church Life Journal, especially speaking on feminist and gender issues, of which she is an expert. I love it. You can get her first book, Into the Deep, which is a story of her conversion into Catholicism through her feminist and gender theories. It's fascinating. It's a great read. Uh, it's very much in alignment with Catching Fox's audiences. I think you'll love it. That's what we first interviewed her on. But now this interview, she is at the Church Life Journal at the, uh, the McGrath Institute at Notre Dame, which is awesome. But she just came out with a new book with Ignatius Press called The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, and The Question of gender, who we are as men and women, has never been more pressing or misunderstood. And so what she does is helps you understand how we got to this situation, starting with the feminist movement, especially the major figures of people like Simone de Beauvoir, Margaret Sanger, and Judith Butler, of which I constantly interrupt her because I only want to talk about these three people. We don't even, basically in the book we end at about page 101 We out of the 200 and something pages. So there's a lot of amazing stuff that still continues on with this. But we 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 really do a a deep dive into these characters and you know areas that she agrees with, disagrees with. I had a fun time, especially when Luke shows up in the middle of the show. Yes, Luke is at Notre Dame, rah-rah rah. And he shows up in the conference room where she's recording the show. Very funny. Uh, So Luke gets to be in on here for about 45 minutes. It's awesome. Great having him back on. So also our sponsors today, we have just one, betterhelp.com slash foxes. Thank you for sponsoring this show. Also, don't forget to go to catchingfoxes.fm where we have our store. Did you know we have a merch store that I never talk about? Yes, we have merchandise filled with inside jokes that only listeners of the show can enjoy. Finally, head on over to patreon.com slash cf, that's patreon.com slash cf, in order to become a member of our Patreon community, where sometimes I post things, most of the time I don't. Yeah. (laughs) But the Discord is popping fresh. We have three episodes of a fan base version of Catching Foxes called Chasing Foxes. I think it is just so absolutely delightful. On to the show, and by the show I mean the BetterHelp ad. Now let's take a break to hear a word from our Spencer, Spencer, sponsor, BetterHelp. Sisters, you and I need to take care of our minds. As Luke reminded us all in the original BetterHelp ad, God wants us to have healing, but that healing doesn't always happen overnight. Now, let's be practical. How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep the same one your entire life? That's how our brains work. We don't get three of them, so why don't we treat them in the same way we would take care of a lifelong car? We have to care for our minds and our emotions because that is how we experience life. So it is important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language, taking power naps. That's my favorite way. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I had a friend who's going through postpartum depression, and she wanted to talk to someone who was pro-life, shared her faith, as well as a professional licensed counselor. Guess what? Betterhelp.com slash foxes. That helped. You know why? Because they can talk through them from a faith perspective, at the very least understand how faith can assist someone in healing. And it's brilliant, and it's beautiful. And guess what? You get to do it directly with someone over video chat, a phone call if you don't want to go on video. It's awesome. Betterhelp, H-E-L-P is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash foxes. That's BetterHelp.com slash foxes. Thank you, BetterHelp, for being a sponsor of this episode of Catching Foxes. So, how you doing? New job, new year, new you? I know.
1: I know. I'm good, I guess, you know, except for being sweaty and running late and losing my office key on the first day, but, you know. (laughs) That's...
0: So, what are you doing there? What are you doing at the church life thing? What is it called?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm at the University of Notre Dame. Today's my first day, first day of school, and... I'm a professor in the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and they run the amazing Church Life Journal, if Which is you all awesome. aren't familiar. Yeah. Yes, it's it's seriously one of the—and I don't say this because I work for McGrath now, but for years it's been kind of my go-to It's for substantive, rich, especially Catholic takes and analysis on— um, cultural topics. It's really great. So the McGrath Institute is much bigger than just the Church Life Journal, but basically its mission is to connect the resources of the academy with the church as a whole. So they do a lot of programming, especially in the summer. It's like busy time right now for McGrath. Um, they do a lot of programming for Catholic educators, for parochial workers. They have this echo program. Yep. that. So they have all these kind of initiatives and programs. And, it's awesome. But they're just trying to engage with the the church, like people who are actually just ordinary people in the church. Is it named um, after yeah. Alistair McGrath? No, no, it's named after the generous... Donor, <laughs> donors McGrath. Nice, donors McGrath. McGee. I, donors <laughs> McGrath. I should know. It is my first day. I should know both of their names. I'm pretty sure her name is Joan. I'm not sure what Mr. McGrath's nice. name is. It might be Alistair. I have no idea, but yeah. So that's they have been very generously supported the institute, which is um, doing a lot of amazing things. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of being brought in as a expert and women's issues and gender stuff, so I'll be developing resources in that area and teaching a bit here and there, so I'm very excited.
0: Nice. Yesterday, I had my uh, youth ministry department meeting, and uh, we have about 700-ish kids from uh, middle school to high school in our youth ministry program, and so I told them all that your book is now required reading your new (gasps) book, uh, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Mm -hmm. Theory. Um, from Ignatius Press, so that's what we're going to talk about today. All the good, fun stuff there. Cool. Um, you know, I've been active in the pro-life movement since I was five years old. When I was five, my parents took Mark. me to the steps of the Oklahoma City, uh, you know, city hall building, and we did a pro-life, you know, rally there. And my dad's been a pro-life sidewalk counselor for years here in Texas. Uh, really hard in Texas at the clinic here because they have a wall that surrounds the parking lot, so you don't really have, you can't really see the women except from afar and. Um, you know, he's the peaceful protester, helpers of God's precious infants where they just mostly just pray and, um, you know, try to be a loving and sane influence. And, uh, it it was crazy because, um, I, I tend to get this allergy. The more I got into evangelization in the very beginnings of my ministry and in doing youth ministry, the more I like stopped wanting to get involved in the morality stuff because like culture warrior stuff, because. Well, one, I felt like it was just people screaming at each other and and that's not helpful to win people for Christ, but then the, there was this thing where I know it's so divisive. I thought, well, if I can just woo them with Jesus and get them onto the Jesus bandwagon, yeah. then everything else will kind of take care of itself. but the more I'm encountering all this stuff um with the rise, you know especially after the gay marriage Supreme Court decision and then the rise of the tra- the very swift rise of the transgender movement, I find like I'm, I'm, I'm losing people left and right from the church. Like they are, it's not that I'm like they're colonizing actively the minds and hearts of these kids. And I'd hate to say, I hate to say this because it sounds so absolutist and Sith only deal in absolutes as Star Wars episode three told us. But, uh, I, I don't see, like, I'm in a very conservative area, very high academics and all the kids are woke as hell. And they're all they're all drinking the Kool-Aid, even if it's I mean, I I, I would I would probably say like 20 percent of the public school teachers vote Democrat. You know, (laughs) like it is a strong Republican, not just conservative, but deeply Republican. All their kids are woke. Every one of them. Every one of them. I did a senior leadership thing and all all they can do is talk about these topics and um, they without any frame of reference to morality. And then I realize, oh, that's because they've never been taught Catholic morality. (laughs) So then I saw you on Frad's show. I'm not offended that you went there first. I'm not offended. Why would I be offended? (laughs) Frad should be offended. He's just the Um, (laughs) warm-up. But you sent me the book. I watched your show twice. Uh, He sent me the book, or you sent me the book, and I'm like, this is an antidote to chaos here. It really Mm -hmm. is. So um, so what what prompted the writing right now of this book?
1: That's a good question. So this book actually started out as a different book. Um, that was going to be focused more specifically on feminism and a, a kind of critique of secular feminism from a Catholic perspective. But it just really quickly went sideways and just took an (laughs) abrupt right turn and became about gender. I think I started writing the chapters on gender at first. I was like, yeah, I'll have a chapter on gender. And then that chapter just kept growing and growing. And finally I realized, oh, this is a different book. Like this, this, I, I need to write a book just on this. And, um, I think the more research I was doing too, the more, I mean, the more you really like stick your head into the engine and see what's going on with this stuff, um, the more, Pressing it feels to respond to it. I think so. That was also part of it. I was listening to a lot of first person narratives from detransitioners, which, you know, if you really just sit and listen to those stories, it's very, very hard to, to then just kind of get up and go back to your life and pretend you didn't see anything. So, um, and yeah, that's just kind of the writing process too, you know, like books kind of can get away from you and and become something else. So, uh, I didn't sit down intending, to write this specific book but it was in the pretty quickly with you know grew into what it now is yeah
0: yeah I think this it's kind of funny because when you're saying that it morphs uh or morphs it it follows along the feminist movement where it started about women and then it became about gender and now it's like all over the place and so you find this um I think you did a really great walkthrough for people who want to get their minds around Feminism, obviously, you know, and gender studies and stuff. But the the walk, the tour de force that you take, I think this book is worth it just for the first like three or four chapters, the first hundred pages. Mm. Uh, you, every, everyone should buy this book for because I'm sick and tired of hearing people who don't know what they're talking about talk about feminism and feminazis and all that stuff. <laughs> like that's the culture warrior stuff that like drives yes. me insane. Yeah. But at the same time, so I um, I haven't seen the what is a woman documentary but i got the uh, because i don't have a daily wire or anything subscription but i got the audiobook and i listened to that and it's just a transcription of it you know it's 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 pretty well done and matt walsh reads it so it's all done his voice and cadence and that guy is like the deadpan delivery it's kind of which makes it actually really funny but um going through it like i'm just like why can't people just say yeah a woman is a biological female And because to me, it renders everything incoherent if you say, Well, I'm transitioning to become a woman. It's like, Well, I know I'm not a female, but I want to be as much like one as possible. But it's like they can't even, like, they have to. And I didn't understand at all. Like, why can't they, like, grant the biological ground and just say, like, they do with the gender unicorn? Like, this is how I feel mentally. So I want my outward appearance to conform to that as much as possible. But they have to go to this next step in, in this bizarre world of denying womanhood. Essentially. And then I remember, oh, yeah, the the essentialists of the French feminism that we talked about, um, (laughs) you know, oh, so many years ago. And and how you you just walk through that existentialist Simone de Beauvoir stuff that I thought was was so powerful. So why don't we talk a little bit who was Simone Mm -hmm. de Beauvoir and and what was her approach to feminism that kind of kicked this whole thing off in a way? Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to understand what's going on with gender, it really is an offshoot from the, the feminist tree. Um, so Simone de Beauvoir was an existentialist philosopher in, and she wrote this, um, pretty important text called the second sex in 1949. So she's writing in a time when actually feminist is a, feminism as a movement is really not, non-existent. So first wave feminism happened in the early 20th century. And then once, um, at least in the West, women got the right to vote, it pretty much disbanded, right? Their, their goals of legal equality had been met. Um, and the second wave feminist the second wave of feminism doesn't kind of break until the late 1960s. So she's writing in kind of a quiet period for this stuff. Um, and it's interesting because her, her book is called the second sex. She doesn't even use the term gender, but the ideas in that book, I think I, I make the argument that, that the mustard seed of gender theory is is found in the second sex when um, Simone de Beauvoir says that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. So she's making a distinction there between woman and female. So there's, she, and she's very, she very much takes biological facticity seriously. So she's not, you know, she's not um, an anti-realist, but she is saying that what we think of as a woman is really something much more instilled by culture, um, and only has a tenuous connection to biology. And that was a, a hugely important move to make, drawing that distinction. And then gender became the term that named that cultural construction piece as distinct from sex.
0: Yeah, so the the one of the things that I constantly come back to is how important philosophy is and that we are all beholden to some dead philosopher and economists, you know, like we don't even know why we hold the beliefs that we hold half the time. And a lot of it is like, you can't understand this, this, um, the inability to define what a woman is. You can't understand that apart from existentialist philosophy and kind of like the Jean-Paul Sartre and all the stuff kind of going on with, with the understanding that I need to become, I need to make myself a human. You're not born a human. You're born Mm -hmm. kind of with this. Yeah, you got the, I I love that you put it. um, We don't have human natures. It's the human condition. And you hear that phrase all the time, the human condition. Yeah, we have a material reality, but my freedom for it to be absolute uh, for it to be a true value has to get beyond the facticity which the the word games that all this stuff it just drives me insane, like the oh, hilarious yeah. Judith Butler, the worst sentence oh, ever written like I know I, I
1: had to put the whole thing in there, even though it, it was like so a paragraph funny. long yeah
0: one <laughs> sentence, a paragraph long, all of yeah but it 's funny so like yeah. there 's word games right there 's these mm-hmm. categories that you thought you knew you don 't know right and when when you get into this but the existentialist understanding that like my existence ends up defining who i am through my freedom man is condemned to be free animals they got their animal nature but we humans we don't right we we have this freedom that allows us to define who and what we are our identity and at the end of the day uh You know, what we are is, is our pure freedom. Like we're not a doctor. Those are labels that we put on, you know, one philosopher said, it's like a peg you hang these different coats or these different personalities on, um, but then you get into into her stuff and how it applies to womanhood, and it's fascinating because like there's so much. I think it was I think he was saying this about her that like you agree in one paragraph and in the next par- paragraph you couldn't agree disagree more because like you're reading this and you're like there is something mm-hmm. she attaches herself to the perennial tradition of philosophy like yeah like being a human you know that we have the great phrase in the Christian tradition become what you are right you are made mm-hmm. in the image and likeness of God Go so become what you are but there's there's also a givenness to reality and to nature but she sees in that the feminine oh gosh how did you put it like the way to become transcendent is not to encounter the living god who knows you and loves you but is to overcome the facticity of your femaleness especially fertility you know things kind of relating around that i don't know what are your thoughts
1: because you you can see a way in which this basic idea could be compatible with a Christian understanding where we have our nature, but we also have this freedom and this capacity for conversion and transformation. And when that kind of conversion and transformation is ordered to becoming who we were made to be, it is, it is this sense of freedom, right? True freedom. But I think with at least the, the atheistic and existentialists like de Beauvoir and Sartre, uh, the, the transcendence isn't ordered toward anything in particular at all, right? Because there's nothing out there, um, and so even, so, it's almost the as though one's freedom is kind of in conflict with one's nature. Like there's this sense of conflict, and it's especially for women. I mean, that's my main critique of Simone de Beauvoir's approach: is that her her whole framework of what the telos of a human being is is based on. Kind of a masculine ideal, and because she sees our animal nature as something that we have to transcend, and she sees women as more animal than men because of the the way we're quote enslaved to the species because of our reproductive capacities, and she doesn't think that giving birth counts as creative action in the world, right? Because it's something natural. Um, so you know, only kind of projects, you know, and um, creative action that's not purely natural counts. And so for women, you know, really to accept that value system, really women puts women at odds um, with their bodies. And I think that's exactly what has happened in American feminism and Western feminism as a, on the whole, which is why I think Simone Beauvoir is such an influential um, figure in this because her, so she really influenced Betty Friedan, who wrote the feminine mystique and that then the second wave of feminism really took on, I think um, a lot of these ideas that, to be truly free, women have to, in a sense, transcend their femaleness.
0: So the woman, the female body kind of represents nature, it represents facticity, you know, and it represents um, imminence. And I, I love that, like, there's this element where, like, there, there's a lot of truth to that. Like, the eminence, like, the, the, what was the phrase? Uh, the fertility of a woman is. Oh gosh, what was the phrase? I can't remember. Some Catholic philosopher was talking about theology of the body and they said like the 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 fertility of a woman is the embodiment or the icon of hope, the very hope of life, like life will go on because this exists, this person who in in their yes can can generate, I mean, literally the yes of one woman brought hope of eternal salvation. But just as a species or as a tribe or as a people or as a family or as, you know, whatever, like here we have the and and there's this So there's a beauty, like you can see the symbolism in the imminence, right? Creation, the womb of the mother, mother earth. There's a reason why these things make purchase in our, in our minds and whatnot, but the way, but she hates it. (laughs) Like that's the thing. She hates it. And it's the Mm -hmm. thing that like we love. It's like all the things she inverts Genesis. I feel like you got the creation of the man, then the woman. And she's like, no, it's more like, you know, you got the animals, then the woman, then the man almost where it's like, the man is like the pinnacle. And we got to be like this, where, where it's all external, it's all outside of myself, it's all me doing these, like you said, projects, me creating, me doing these things out in the world. And it's like, she values the building of the Empire State Building, which will one day crumble to dust, and not these eternal lives you know, that, that a, a mother brings forth with her body. Like, she can't see the value in these things. And it's almost – one person commenting on um, – it was a pro-life libertarian who was commenting. They said, uh, my problem with, um, with modern feminism is it worships the cervix and denies the uterus or something like that, where it's like it, it, it wants to exalt feminist uh, – or sex and you know free love and all that stuff, but deny the fertility. And it's like – but that's the one thing you have over men. Like, it's kind of a big <laughs> deal. It's kind of a right. big deal. Oh, you know what's happening right now? Luke is calling me because he wants to know where your office is. Hey, Luke! Hi. <laughs> well, How you
2: scream that out loud? I'm in headphones. People are staring at me like I'm an
0: idiot. Okay. Well, I also have you on speakerphone, and uh, <laughs> I'm on the I'm on the uh, the call right now. You're actually <laughs> Doctor is She's actually in a. Uh, she's she's squatting illegally in a I'm squatting
1: illegally in a room. conference room cuz I lost the key on my first day. I lost the key to my office so I'm locked out of it.
0: Okay. Luke Luke wants to pop in and say hi. Is that okay?
1: I would love that. She yes. would
0: love that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So second story in the Getty's building.
1: Yeah, next second to the library. floor. Yeah, he might it's it's hard to find places on campus. I relate to that. If he doesn't have a lot of time
0: yeah, yeah Lucas Luke, Luke Luke has 2 hours basically in mm. a day for freedom and most of that time is spent still studying. So he is uh he didn't think he'd be able to do anything today. So cuz I was like, "Hey, you know, yeah. I was trying to tell him that you're there now and he can yeah. pop in and say hi." And he's like, okay, I'll try to come on. I'll try to show up. And I was like, No, 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 no. That's
2: how <laughs> like we're gonna be rolling.
0: So what the heck were we talking no. about? And then I'm gonna look forward to Luke like plastering himself up against the glass door of whatever you're I know,
1: yeah. right? Um
0: <laughs> good old like
1: dude. yeah. Um I don't know. What we're, we were talking about existentialism. Oh, projects. yeah, I mean like the the woman
0: right, like the woman is the pinnacle of creation in, mm. in at least in Chesterton's good reading of of. Of Genesis, right? Like you have the man and then the woman, you know, and for him, like in a lot of the, the mythology, right, the recounting that Jordan Peterson's made so popular, the idea is like the feminine is is that which civilizes and the mm-hmm. masculine is that which, you know, conquers or, you know, goes out into the whatever. But the idea of like only valuing the one and not seeing how there's absolute value in both of them, right? Like, I, I don't know i I feel like that that's the right integration of the masculine and the feminine for men and for women, right We all need mm-hmm. that element of integration. We all need civilization and a little bit of wild, but it it just <laughs> seems like she just rejects it you know i I don't get
1: that yeah i mean she's she does some crazy psychoanalysis stuff in her, but you know it's hard not to want to psychoanalyze her like I know okay, here's someone who's like deeply uncomfortable with her own you know femaleness and, and you know and on the one hand like you could read that charitably right i mean she's writing in 1949 like she, she's a philosopher she's hella smart like she, like Simone de Beauvoir and Simone Veil actually were if you know Simone Veil they were in the same class and that they they had the top two scores on like the sort of philosophy final and like Sartre was you know, number three or something, I don't know. So she's like brilliant, you know, she's looking around and seeing this kind of very male dominated world of academia and philosophy. And, you know, so you could understand why she would want to kind of aspire to that. But then she, you know, it it means basically idealizing the masculine rather than thinking like, oh, I wonder if there's a way to also value women. And anyway,
0: yeah let's talk about Judith Butler because she's okay. the one I'm not familiar with, but she's the real mm-hmm. linchpin of so you mm-hmm. have the first wave of feminism is uh mostly dealing with the legal and political system to give you know women suffrage women rights um protections from uh domestic violence um you know, marriage and inheritance rights, rights over children, a lot of us don't realize because the pendulum is completely the opposite way today where, you know, they don't even think about fathers half the time in divorce settlements with custody and all that stuff. But um, women were not able to inherit in a lot of this stuff. So it was like a lot of Christian women, the, the teetotalist movement um, to ban alcohol and stuff was kind of all wrapped up in this um, initial, what, 1880s to twenty twenty. Yeah, 1920s. I mean, the early second,
1: the early first wave feminists would have been— Part, you know, part of the abolition movement, honestly, yeah. oh, but yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the push for suffrage in the U.S. was really in the early 20th century. And then the, um, you know, it was granted in 1920.
0: I used to always um, wonder how then. did the progressives, like the progressive era, uh, why women's suffrage and banning alcohol? You know, and it's because yeah. of that movement, it's like these women are getting destroyed in their domestic lives by the poison of alcoholism and all this stuff, and so they kind of came and and then you and you see the power of the participation in the political process for women
1: right, and, and that then, was so the prohibition movement, yeah, it was yeah. the first time women really became kind of a political force, yeah, yeah,
0: and then you have the twenties with the rise of one particular woman, Margaret Sanger. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, while the feminist movement, you know, does what you're saying, like kind of kind of chills out for a while, you have this totally separate thing. Well, not totally separate, but you have this thing going on culturally, which is to separate. Come in. Ah, here we go. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> nice. Put the Bali? Yeah, yes. yeah.
2: Abby. Yes. Perfect.
1: I'm Perfect. so glad <laughs> it's you because I thought it would be someone that's
2: like I'm you Luke. can't be in here. Hi. It's,
1: oh, so it's nice to meet you. <laughs> here, come here. Hi, come hey, here. Luke. This is Luke. so fun.
2: Yeah. Can I um? Should I should I like put on my headphones and just join and just join the call? Well, I don't know, Luke.
0: How long do you I can have? Can't hear you. Oh, that's true. You can't hear me. I don't know why I'm yelling. I can't hear we're just oh,
1: oh sorry. No, did no, you no, find no. a little place? to <laughs> He says I don't know, Luke. How much time do you have? I, I have an. I have.
2: Awesome. I have to be back in class at two. So say I have about Here an hour. He goes. Hour He's going to ruin it. Well, I have.
1: I have to be on by two as well. So Perfect. or before two anyway. So cool. This is can great. Can you email me yeah.
0: the link? I can.
1: You belong.
0: So okay, we have to do this now, Luke. Everyone has been dying to hear from you. How you doing? How's school?
2: <laughs> I'm great. School's very good. It's extremely I'm busy. Uh, I. It's so funny how how much I do not know. I'm learning about. Know, I'm learning about money and about marketing and how techni rules all. It's great. It's really really good. Techne rules all. So
0: <laughs> there's the Luke we've missed. <laughs>
1: ah. <laughs>
2: I'm just like, oh, my gosh, the only way to actually do church work in a way that's going to get people to give money to go against the very thing that, that we are. <sighs>
0: Explain that. What do you mean? You mean by, by constantly seeking after money or what?
2: No, no, no. I I just think there's uh, I think it's this, I think this is all it could be very helpful for people who work on behalf of the church or or who work for you know. So, sorry. Um Abigail, I I am in the executive of Nasser's for nonprofit ed, um, administration program at the Mendoza College of Business here at Notre Dame. For people who don't know. There's some really good stuff there, but one of the temptations when I think you do Church work is to think, like, if I do this stuff, everything will work well, as opposed to, like, here's the mission of what I'm doing. How do I put this at the service of the mission? And I think that's what they would say for any, non, for any nonprofit to do. But I think the hard part with uh, church with church work or just anything dealing um, with some form of ministry is that sometimes what you're being called to might go against what your marketing advisor would, like, would say. Because it's like not what people—they're not like if they say what they want, what they want might not be what like we know they actually need or, or what God is calling us to. So it's just a matter of just really I'm making sure that it's well like ordered, so you're not I'm sacrificing your call for efficiency. I can see I can see how you could do some really good stuff, and it it, it, it has to like it's it's always like like God has to move first, and it's all just a response to whatever God is calling you to. let Luke is back, baby. <laughs>
0: Let's go back to talking about feminism. Oh, man. <laughs> we're talking about this book. Just came out. When, when did it come out? Uh, about a month ago?
1: No. I mean, nope. it came out like a couple weeks ago. I actually have a copy, Luke, if you want to grab one. I can oh, give you one. Yes. I yes. brought some today. So. Awesome. I would love yeah. that. It's awesome. I would love that. Thank okay. you.
2: Yeah,
0: and it is, it is a great book. So we're just going through uh, First Wave Feminism, then you got the Margaret Sanger period. And I found that to be powerful. I think, what was the chapter called? Control. And mm-hmm. I mean, oh my goodness! like I, I've read a bunch of the like the super racist eugenic quotes from her, and you know stuff like that when, when I was doing pro life work, but good lord uh the the other quotes that are awesome that I've encountered by awesome i mean awful uh some all versus full all um are the the quotes that she has about sex and how a man cool. takes a woman by the hand and leads her uh it almost anticipates she has like an apocalyptic vision of sex and uh and and it, it you know tied to her utopian views of of the world, but like the man leads the ignorant woman into the domains of sex. Have you encountered some of those? I know um, what's the name, Doctor uh, Grabowski, out at um, Catholic University. He's uh, pulled out some of these amazing quotes from uh, for, for his, one of his books on theology of uh, theology of the body, sex and virtue. That's what it's called, Sex and Virtue by Catholic University. I mean, it's crazy. Like she's a worshipper of sex.
1: Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah, it's wild. yeah. and she—it's—it's—it was—it's been really interesting for me to connect, to realize how connected the the philosophical movements that are happening with the technological movements that are also happening at the same time, um, like the the development, well, first there's the birth control movement and then also the development of hormonal birth control and how much this becomes tied to feminism and also how unpopular her views were initially. You know, I mean, she really was, she really did kind of single-handedly completely turn public opinion in America, um, you know, because when she started her movement, people were like, oh yeah, eugenics, awesome, birth control, No. And now, like that's totally flipped in our time. Birth control is seen as just this, like you know, panacea for all of women's problems. Whereas eugenics is like eh, not so much. Um, but yeah, she was deeply eugenicist. Um, it's really kind of shocking to hear the way she kind of describes uh, people as these human weeds clogging up the earth. And you know, the yeah. the real problem is that women keep having babies. You know, women there are too many human. There are too many people, and women keep. Giving birth to these wasteless human weeds and yeah, uh, so redundant, to...
0: redundant lives. <laughs> oh, good yeah. lord. And so she yeah. blames, she blames women for birth, right? That was one of your critiques. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it, she does. She, yeah. she like goes out, like basically blames it all on women for being uh breeders, uh, you know. And...
1: Yeah, well, I mean, she says basically like every single problem the world has can be traced to the fact that women have babies like tyranny well who gave birth to the tyrant you know yeah. i mean she really is that explicit about it she just scapegoats females for everything right That that's that's the problem and if we fix that you know and if that then... becomes
0: the mentality of the birth control movement i mean how widespread does that that becomes like one of those implicit premises that it's manifested later on like when you talk about women who use contraception from the age of 13 or 15 or whatever tend to view their bodies as non-fertile things. Like fertility isn't a thought when people think of their own bodies. And that's where I find this stuff to be the most interesting is it's, yeah, I love the philosophy because I was a philosopher, you know, all that stuff, but I love the way it works. It's I, I love studying how it works its way through culture and then how it affects us individually. Like when I go to my doctor for an abortion or to be euthanized, what am I doing to a culture where we legalize that for doctors, right? Where doctors, instead of being these icons of health okay. and wellness and life, become symbols of death an easy death, right? A medical, uh, uh, like we sanctify it when you take these pillars and you turn them into the pillars of life and you turn them into dealers of death. And then you think of like, well, what does it do to, if if women kind of internalize this um, I'm a lesser sex because I'm not as liberated. you know I, I can't be like a man who can have sex with eight different women, get them all pregnant and walk away from it all, and the the idea of pun- like of hating of despising the burden of fertility, right, because it is a burden, it can absolutely be a burden. but like she takes this next step of like um of, of annihilation, right? like we this is the thing that needs to stop. Right, and it becomes implicit in our culture. Where, like you said, in her views are—you know—then they were radical and shocking, and today they're—they're they're not just fashionable, but they're the default.
2: Well, and I think like um, one thing that's kind of interesting about this is that if you take a look at from a historical perspective, from what I recall, that period her views on well, like eugenics—they're not um, unique by any means. That's That was—I mean—read any like biology textbook of that time, and it's like, oh my gosh. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. They were very popular. Yeah. yeah very very widely accepted. Yeah. So, especially among the elites, yeah. right? Because it's yeah. all about like, oh, those underclasslings, you know, let's get rid of those.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, and, like, even with like how some of the structures today that still that still exist, there's this idea of like they kind of get to their own roots and we're going to nobilize the savage. I don't, I'm not trying to say this. It feels weird even, I not like saying that, but this whole like, like, we're going to make the world better better by, like, either destroying this group or trying to take out everything that, that like, makes them them and, like, give them all these noble things so they can be, you know, how um, whatever. And where does she get, so if her ideas on women are, like, now somewhat, not I was like her, like, her exact ideas are the norm, but if it's become, if it has like influenced, what is like the norm now? Where does she get those ideas from back, back then? Like what's influencing her to, to take that stance? Hmm,
1: That's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm not totally sure. I mean, so she, she was kind of at odds with the first wave feminists. So they, you know, they did not share her views and she did not really respect them um because she doesn't think that they went far enough, right? That they didn't actually get to the root of the problem, which is female fertility. Well, I mean, I guess one thing would be just her personal experience. I mean, she is seeing very real problems, yeah. right? She is responding to very real problems. I mean, that's feminism is often trying to respond to very real problems, right? It just doesn't always diagnose them correctly or prescribe the the right solutions and, you know, sometimes these problems where there aren't any. But you know she's seeing like women who have had you know like 14 kids and then die in childbirth and then they're mm-hmm. all in poverty. you know so she's seeing the fact that there are that there is something wrong right that, that that there's some that our society is not you know giving the kind of support that women need to be able to um, and, and su- to supporting the children that many women do have right. So she is seeing some problems um, but then I think her her kind of utopian response. To that, you know, ends up backfiring. It's it's interesting because Margaret Sanger wasn't actually pro-abortion. She no. she saw abortion negatively, but she thought that birth control would stop abortion. But that turned out actually not to be the case because the rates of abortions just skyrocketed after um, America became a contraceptive culture. So contraception changes the way that you think and behave about sex. Right, mm-hmm. and so that actually can create more unplanned pregnancies, and then and then abortion becomes basically the backup birth control for when birth control doesn't work. Right, so they kind of they rise together when a when a culture first becomes contraceptive, those two things rise together. Um, yeah, and then we were we were going to hit Butler too. I don't know if we want to like well, jump forward yeah. oh, to sorry. Butler. Yeah,
0: Le, yeah. Let me, no, no, totally fine. Let, uh, this is interesting because. Sorry,
1: I'll let you drive. I'm sorry, I was. I'm. I'll, I'm. I'll let you lead.
0: No, it's all good. <laughs> I did say let's talk about Judith Butler. Anywho, Margaret Sanger. Um, <laughs> one of the it reminds me of the rise of Anglicanism. I was like, how is it that a country that is 100 percent Catholic can go to uh, all the priests, all the bishops, just in the matter of months or a few years, all just say, oh yeah, the Rome, the Church of Rome, separated from the Church of England. And I always wondered that. And it wasn't until I was reading Scott Hahn's book, the decline and fall of sacred scripture or something like that. Um, And he was talking about how uh, preceding the Reformation in England, especially there was this view that uh, a widespread view from Wycliffe and Huss, the the morning stars of the Protestant Reformation, they, they predate it. But they were saying like, no, if you look in the Old Testament, the Levites are under the Judahite kings. So the priesthood, a.k.a. the church, should be under the king. And England, there was a mythos that England is the successor of Old Testament Israel, right? And France had their own version of that. These are the narratives that they were telling themselves that, well, I am King David Part Two. you know, this time it's personal and British. Um, and so that's, that was becoming one of the most popular. So it supplied a mythology to England at a time when there were high tensions with Rome because of the Holy Roman Empire and all that stuff. And then you have... Um, you have this this launch of a Protestant Reformation, which was pointing out really bad issues in the church that Lateran 4 couldn't resolve. And so it just was a, a, a conflagration of things that were happening. And you look at someone like Margaret Sanger. I mean, not only was she pushing birth control as a movement, and a lot of people attached it to abortion, so they were very nervous. So she did her best to detach contraception contraception from abortion in people's minds. But also, I mean, within 10 years, the the Anglicans had the Lambeth Conference that made contraception okay in certain circumstances, which with married couples that prompted Cassie Canubi. So it goes from like an unspeakable evil that we're not going to use to widespread acceptance throughout almost all of Christianity within 15 years. You know, like in in almost all of Christianity within 15 years, um, it was pushed by Margaret Sanger on – especially african-american communities uh using the the idea of uplift right we're going to pull you out of poverty we're going to save you we're going to do all this stuff but in reality she just wanted to sterilize the mud races to make more room for white people but um you find that out in her other writings but um yeah like there was this seedbed you got the master race crap eugenics you have all this stuff and it's like well yeah we'll just do what we do for animal husbandry and we'll turn it on to people we'll do it to ourselves Mm -hmm. It's wild. It's wild. And, you know, hey, free sex. You
2: know. How does so how, how does this butler person like fit in fit into all that?
0: Let us journey to Judith.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, so We're back, baby. You, you know what? You know, I'm actually excited to talk about Judith Butler because I had a dream about her last night. <laughs> and it was like I've had two dreams about Judith Butler and they're always really fun. We like hang out and like part of the dream last night we were like sharing a recliner and like both reading books <laughs> together.
2: Do you know, <laughs> so, what I don't know why I Here's a weird dream that I had. I I, I just have to share. This is a very on brand for me. I had a dream that Christian Pulisic, who's the, the star of the U.S. men's national soccer team, was dating Britney Spears, and they were very angry at at me. And I don't know why. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> It was just like, oh, "That's it. That's it." <laughs> are, are, aren't are you glad I'm back, uh, I'm So glad. Sorry. Uh, go off <laughs> with your thing about That's much more important.
1: Right. Right. Well, okay. So Judith, Judith Butler. Um, so I, earlier in our conversation, I was talking about how Simone de Beauvoir's ideas paved the way for the sex gender split, which you see in second wave feminism, where sex is seen as biological and then gender names the the kind of cultural, um, interpretations or expressions of sex. And that's, that's socially constructed, whereas biology is not. Well, Judith Butler comes in so she's she's very postmodern in her philosophy so she very much relies on the work of Michel Foucault the French philosopher and so she's she's a social constructionist like to the extreme basically so she really sees that like nothing she thinks nothing is natural so she begins to think okay well not so she makes the argument that it's not only true that gender is a social construct but sex itself is also a social fiction so any attempt that we make to name or to interpret or create meaning around certain biological differences is um, m- a matter of linguistic and social power um, and not actually a matter of fact. So that was a huge, I think, step. And she really, she's really kind of the godmother of gender theory and has has, I think, paved the way for some of the the kind of extrapolations that have happened to popular culture, even though I think what's happening on the ground doesn't actually really um, cohere very well with Judith Butler's philosophy, um, like to name a couple of examples. So, so she, you know, she's also. Um, one of the, uh, the important philosophers in queer theory. And, and queer theory is all about interrogating norms, disrupting norms. Um, and But what we're seeing, I think, especially on kind of the popular level with gender, is the creation of new norms, right? The proliferation of new categories that are policed and very much asserted as if they're real right? I mean, you might get some kind of hardcore, like, I'm genderqueer, nothing is real. I'm just going to kind of like mess with all the boundaries, people. You know, you've got those people. And those, I think, are a little more philosophically honest in a way and more philosophically aware um, and perhaps more Butlerian. Um, But I think what we're really seeing is that the Judith Butler kind of anti-realist philosophy paved the way for basic facts about reality to be upended And then what people have done in that vacuum is to reassert new categories, but to assert those as real, to not say that those are social constructs, right? So I think the average, you know, person who's really swept up in this stuff who says trans women are women. No, they they
0: don't say that. They say trans women are women, right? (laughs) They have to have the clapping hands emojis when it's on Twitter. Trans, Say it with me. Trans women. Okay. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so my guess is that that person, right, is probably not thinking, well, woman is just a construct. So, of course, anyone who says they're a woman is a woman, you know, um, but is re- rather saying, no, this is real. Like, they are women. Like, that's real. And if you would disagree, you're not only wrong, but you're also a bigot, right? So you have this. <laughs> you have this weird kind of... <laughs> I don't, know. It's, I don't know how to, exa- I haven't figured out exactly how to like name it or talk about it, but it's like this this anti-realist realism that's happening where people are, are basically reshaping their understanding of reality and then not really realizing that it is just kind of a language game ultimately. Yeah. Right. And
2: anyway. what's I think one thing that's really hard to try to have these conversations is, is when that's what's going on, I'd love how you put that back, sort of like anti-realist realism that it because this is a super tough thing to have to um, talk about with a lot of different people. And because it, it gets into this, if I'm like, there's this thing where if I'm somehow I'm not going along with it, or if I have some questions, I'm the bad guy here. But when I think about it from their point of view, because and it's it just like, they're adhering to what they think is right. Like there's a, there is a reason why everyone's Doing this right now, it's it's almost as if like we have these two different belief systems. We all have different first premises. Yeah. And we're somehow forced to coexist. And because we are family members, because we're, you know, at we are at school together, we are all of our friends, we are coworkers. Like, how do you begin to have a conversation about you know like these things when the way we even define good or what it, like what is reality? we're not in agreement so can we even talk about this this stuff or is it better to just try to to talk about well how do you define good
0: Hmm. yeah this is why you walk down the hall and you go right over to (laughs) dr alistair (laughs) mcintyre professor alistair mcintyre and you say uh we have these rival conceptions of goodness and philosophy Please, what do we do i mean this is the whole point of his entire work is to show like, exactly we really are mm-hmm. inhabiting completely different moral universes and not just with progress that's why there's so much like we just look at each other and we're like what the hell do you even mean <laughs> like like queer used to mean like taking it from uh oh gosh what's that woman's name i am blanking on her name uh uh she's uh feminist figure gender theory figure but she like disagrees with like everything going on she considers herself a second wave feminist and she said the second wave never ended um she herself was Andrea Dworkin no 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 she uh Bishop uh Bishop Barron reads her books um Jordan Peterson had a sit down with her Um, oh
1: Camille Paglia yes
0: thank you gosh (laughs) she's awesome she She is is fascinating because she at one time Mm -hmm. identified as transsexual Uh, Mm -hmm. but one of the things that she said was why she hates, uh, a lot of the gay rights movement and, and the transgender movement in particular, she said, queer used to mean non-normative. Like Mm -hmm. you lived on the edge and you loved being on the edge precisely because it was the edge. And she said, what the hell does it mean to be queer and make that mainstream. And she's like it doesn't mean anything. Like what is that what is that even how does that become a thing now, <laughs> right? And I'm like these, these are the crazy inconsistencies that I keep running into, you know, like that you talked about. You're the one that opened that up my my eyes up to that when we had you on the show last time and you were talking about like okay, you got the new transgender ideology, and it's like, okay, well, you're telling me that gay people, we ought to have gay marriage because their attraction is immutable from birth towards the uh, the same gender, and now you're telling me that gender is fluid, that there is no set gender, it's all a social construct. Which is it? When does the immutability, immutability, where does that enter? You know? And now the, the height of the absurdity is, tell me what a woman is mm-hmm. at the Woman's March. Like, you can't even do
1: that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, those, the Yes, the, the I guess the nominalist kind of approach to gender does not jive well with the idea of having a fixed sexual orientation or a fixed attraction to a sex if sex itself isn't real, right? If how can you have an innate attraction to something that's not innate, that's just a social construct, right? right. It just doesn't it doesn't make any sense, you know, and there are plenty of lesbian and gay People who are pushing back against this stuff, right. you know. I mean, especially a lot of lesbians, because there's now this this weird kind of pressure for gay people to like having sex with trans people, even though, right? So, say for example, you have a trans identified man, so a man who declares that he's a woman. Um, let's say he still has male genitalia but he's like on a lesbian dating site you know and he thinks of himself as a lesbian because he's a woman and he's attracted to women so he's a heterosexual male who identifies as a lesbian right and so then you have like actual lesbians on this dating app and they're like trying to find a woman today who's not a dude you know and they're sort of frustrated about that right because now Mm -hmm. they're called like transphobic if they if they won't um you know date or have sex with a uh, a male lesbian yeah. you know it's a real it's a wild world out there right now
0: well i remember a news anchor on like abc news was was <laughs> it, it just this is where i realized like oh my goodness the whole ground has shifted in a matter of months was when he was like are you saying you wouldn't date a man who has who uh has transitioned to becoming a woman and the guy's like looking around he's like yeah no i no, i only date women and he's like are you sir that is a bigotry and i'm like Holy crap! It's now right. illegal for me. It's unethical for me to to only be attracted to biological females. That is pure discrimination. You know, it, it it's
1: really. I mean, yeah, it's so fascinating too because it's like okay, if if this idea of first of all, sex and gender have been totally conflated and now they're used interchangeably, and who knows what the hell they're mean. So whatever. But if womanhood, let's say, is really this kind of self concept in the mind, then Basically, the expectation now is that, oh, well, if you say you're, let's say you're a straight male, that means you should be attracted to anyone who has a a female self-concept, right? It's, which is so bizarre, right? Because it almost shifts, it shifts the idea of sexual attraction totally away from the body. Yeah. Right? Which
0: is. It's an alienating Gnosticism. I mean. Yeah. Everyone has been calling it this, like from Christian circles for so long. Like, this is a Gnosticism. And when you trace the, when you go to the second sex from, uh, from Simone, right? Like, there, there is, and Margaret Sanger, like, there is a deep seated hatred of what makes a woman female, of, of, of so much of it, I should say, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, and, and it is, and you cannot, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because, it wasn't just so many of my high school students here at my church are identifying, you know, 20% are identifying as trans. Um, I don't even think half of them know what that means. But they're out there and they're doing it and they're watching TikTok and doing the little dances. Um, yes. But then you also have the, the Dobbs decision. And the, this always this link between abortion and feminism and gender theory and all of this stuff. Um, the idea of autonomy as being free from the consequences of my actions jp2's critique of the contraceptive mentality as a substitute for virtue i use techne right i i use technology to substitute for virtue so instead of using abstinence i use a condom like then everything's fine and it's like well not everything's fine there, there are deep-seated problems with once we substitute technology even if it's helpful and, and does eliminate poverty in certain circumstances there's still a greater problem which is people who have no self-control and people who are letting their libido dominate them you know um, and you just keep seeing these same things play themselves out. You ever heard the phrase Chesterton's fence? Uh-uh. Chesterton said, you know, two men, uh, modern men, walk in, in you know, whatever, Ireland or something, and they see a stone fence. And the one man says, I, you know, what is this fence here for? I have no idea. Let's rip it up. And the other guy says, <laughs> no, don't rip it up because we have no idea what it's here for. We don't, we don't know what it's marking out, we don't know what it means. And his idea of modern man doesn't know what it's doing because we don't know what we're undoing.
1: Yeah, no, I know that phrase,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, that's where that comes from. It's called Chesterton's Fence. And I keep coming back to that, like, yeah, I understand that there are, like, you watch Mad Men, you see poor Betty, you know, she's oppressed by the, she. you know, the feminine mystique was written for her, the suburban housewife who's having fainting spells because she can't stand her life, she's resentful of her kids, she hates her cheating husband, he has, she. you know, all this stuff. But you you can understand, like, a critique of that, but at the same time, it's like, throwing away everything, all the rules, all the complementarity, all of this for a radical equality that doesn't exist in nature. We don't know what we're doing right now. And it's evident we don't know what we're doing. But we don't, we don't know what we're doing because we don't know what we're undoing with these things. And that's, uh, I don't know, I, that's what keeps bringing me back to this stuff, even though I don't want to deal with it, <laughs> even though I'm so scared. I so scared.
1: Yeah, but I mean, we have to deal with it, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of people who just want to sort of pretend it's not happening or just say, oh, it's just... Just on the liberal coasts, you know, and it's but you're exactly right. I mean, what you're seeing, you know, and if if it weren't for the path of medicalization, I would be much I don't even know if I would be writing about this honestly, like I mean, probably I would just because I'm super interested in gender, but you know this potentially this could be just this weird middle school phase that, that people go through, you know, it's the latest trend. it's like, oh, yeah, you know you're you identify as non-binary or trans for junior high or whatever, but the problem is that. A lot of those kids then are being put on a pathway to ster- permanent sterilization and to all sorts of very invasive kinds of medical routes that could really end up destroying them physically and emotionally. And, you know, so it's the stakes are high. The stakes are very high. We've got to start paying attention.
0: Yeah, uh, we have a me and Luke have a buddy who's a doctor. And when he was in med school, they would say things like uh, they, he did six weeks in OBGYN stuff. And when I was reading the control chapter, I was thinking about him because they were saying how um, every problem that was brought up, the answer was just one thing, the pill. So what happens yeah. if a girl's is cycle is irregular, the pill? What mm-hmm. if she has increased abdominal pain, the pill? What if it's this, the pill? And so he, being a confrontational Catholic, raises his hands and he's like, seems to me that you don't know anything about treating women, that your whole answer is to give people the pill. And that doesn't seem to me to be uh, anything even remotely close to the point of modern medicine and medical practice and being a doctor. And then it became a war because for her, she ideologically, the professor was a woman, ideologically believes that this is the pathway to freedom. Like that Scientific American article you referenced, like, yeah, we got to do all the disclaimers of this is the pathway to freedom. Mm -hmm. But it's going to increase your risk of breast cancer and, you know, all this stuff and an insane degree. And if you don't do, like, every doctor, even I went to a very pro-life Catholic doctor. Now my wife goes to a place who uh, is now explicitly, you know, anti-contraception, all that stuff. But um, we just went to, like, the local Catholic guy who knew what NFP was. And he tried to push sterilization and, and contraception and IUDs on us the whole time. Every time we had a kid. Every damn wow. time. And it's crazy that you, you change the textbooks, you change the culture of the medical field immediately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Though that's actually a really, a really good connection to make that this, I, this, this kind of trend of having this simplistic reductive answer to all this whole like, range of possible ills. Right. And that's exactly what's happening with the gender affirmation. Um, yeah. So-called treatment, right. Is that. I think that, I think young people are just, you know, they're not okay right now. They're struggling, right? It's, I mean, adolescence is always hard. It's always rough, but we're seeing mental illness just skyrocket in young people right now. And so a wide variety of different kinds of distress, different kinds of situations and circumstances, disorders, conditions, whatever, just angst is, is being kind of stamped with this one, one stop solution, which unfortunately is, is actually much more invasive and, Irreversible than even the contraceptive pill is, so um, it's yeah, it's not good.
2: Well, I think that's one of the things that I just find super over like overwhelming about all this because there's, you know, we're all experiencing we're all experiencing this uh, within our own lives, w- whether in you know um, a sense of you may have like a family member or a cousin or you know someone whoever who is identifying as trans or is. Um, going under all the medical things for um, transition. Then you just have like conversations with, with like your friends and and your coworkers. And then there's the, the country at large. And then there's like, what are we doing as like a culture? You know, just like, I, I honestly at times feel like I don't even know where to begin to try to work through all of this because it's just I turn on SNL and they're about to introduce the ban and there's Don Amchito with a shirt that says, um, a support trans, uh, support trans kids. Love the idea that he wants to um, support kids who are going through very hard things, who wouldn't want that. But it's like, how I don't, I really don't even know how to navigate any of this because it's just like, I feel like it's just like you're getting eaten bad by all by all sides, and it feels almost like over like overwhelming. And I don't know if this is why sometimes in some people's eyes, a thing like um, the Benedict Option, or whatever, sounds more appealing because it's just like you know what, like I'm out. to hell with it, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. You know, but like I just for me, I, I can't. Like there are even like certain things with our podcast that I our hard stances that I haven't wanted to take that I think Matt Frad has, that I've actually really admired him for doing that. But at the same time, I'm like, if I do that, am I forgoing the tension? Mm-hmm. Are, are we called to live in, the, in that tension on like all of those levels from our country to the overall, uh, to like um, Western culture, to our own families, or are we called to like just pull out completely? I really honestly have no idea. So any ideas, I'm... I uh, feel like I'm free to share. You're taking notes. Yeah.
1: I I mean I think the Benedict option is sounds nice. I don't think it's realistic. I mean I think there's a tendency to think that oh this is something that's just happening like out there you know mm-hmm. but it's it's Catholic families who are going through this too right like it's Catholic kids who mm-hmm. are going through this too mm-hmm. like it's it's already like you know and I I, I think that actually in America, especially, there's a huge need for religious institutions to be places of sanity on this, not bunkers, you know, and some people are going that route, right? Some people are like, here's our hard hitting policy. And like, we don't want anything to do with this. We're not going to talk about it. Don't even mention the word trans or gender, blah, blah, blah. You know, but then I, I, I think, I don't think that's the right approach. Um, but I think increasingly we have to have healthy institutions like schools and um, especially that that really do hold to the truth of the human person, but also allow room for accompanying teens who are questioning, um, who are wrestling with gender norms, who are, you know, going through all certain kinds of distress that they may um, either is genuine gender dysphoria or they might just kind of interpret it as gender dysphoria. So. I just think there's, there's, the church needs to be a refuge and a minister. I think right now, like, you know, we can't just be driven by fear. So I guess that's, I guess that's one response to it. Also, I just don't think it works. I don't think it works. You know, I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I remember hearing one story too, of like someone who was in, you know, Some some kid who lived in like kind of a bruderhof type community in South America, like totally cut off from the internet, like he still heard about this stuff, and then just like moved to the city, you know, and transitioned. Right, so I think it's much better for the for you know church communities to be really like looking at this issue head on um, and figuring out complex and kind of substantive ways to deal with it, rather than just reactive ways to deal with it.
0: Hey, Luke, go. can I go real quick? I have these yep. things written down, so I'll stay on track. Yep. This is yeah, what I do right. now. <laughs> so two things that come to mind. Okay. One, I think the Benedict option, in as, as is kind of like getting filtered out, is, you know, okay, and ignore the culture, create your own subculture, and be, be content with your own views and values. I think the idea of the Benedict option was the same thing with the Benedict order, which is, no, it's from a community that you do mission to the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so, right, I mean, right. that, but he, I, I think... Uh, you know the popular view of it's kind of no you go wall yourself off and whatnot yeah that's fair that's fair yeah Yeah. a
1: a genuine benedict option or a dominican option you know like those are those are good responses Yeah. yeah
0: and i mean there's a reason why half the cities in europe are named after the benedictine monastery that was built there because civilization the dark ages grew up around the monastery because they were living in authentic christian faith but the other thing is that that i see is um we, what you said is, I think the, I think is the standard approach for most Catholic parishes. I think most Catholic parishes are not taking a hard line. Sometimes they just don't mention it because they don't know how to without offending everyone mm-hmm. like me in, in, in Hispanic ministry. I don't know how to do it well. So I just get scared and I get quiet. I'm like, you're all welcome. Right. So, uh, but the, the idea is the, if I could say it this way the other side doesn't give a shit about our accompaniment, our beautiful language, our welcoming atmosphere, because just what you said, I mean, from, from the, uh, the, the Margaret Sangers to the Simone de Beauvoir and, and, and Judith Butler, like they are, they have constructed a reality that is the antithesis in certain ways, not in all ways, but in certain ways of the Christian gospel, right? Like you're in your book, you talk about like, I I need to show how, while you can be sympathetic to some of the feminist causes, like, the broader ideology is fundamentally, in a lot of ways, anti-Christian. And so what I find in my ministry is I want to do the thing. I want to be accompanying. I want to be, like, I have talked with several, you know, gay couples who are civilly married and they want to have their child baptized. I have no problem. I, I tell them all the time, come to mass, sit with my family, like be here. Mm-hmm. I w- If you feel like all eyes are going to be on you and you don't belong, then you can sit next to the guy who's the director of evangelization. Everyone knows my chubby face. You'll be fine. <laughs> like, come. Like, you're always invited. And I re-invite them months afterwards. Like, please come. You're like, I'm here. I go to the 9 o'clock mass. Sit here with me. But what I've found is it's the exact opposite. It's like, no, because you're not 100% accepting, I want 0% of you. And that's not an attitude a Christian can ever take, right? We can never mm-hmm. accept that. Christ died for every single person because we are not Calvinists. Christ died for every single person. We love them with the love of Jesus. At least we should. So how, to me, the hostility is not from the church. It's at the church. And that's why it's hard to create a, a safe space for these people to work through in whatever manner, you know, in their freedom.
2: How much of that is you think that, like, our churches aren't even spaces for us to work through our own stuff?
0: I think our youth groups are in a lot of ways. Not all, but I'm, kind of, yeah. I'm just thinking about That's it from true. my That's context true. of, like, we walk on eggshells so that we don't offend, right? Now, and I don't mean we don't state the truth, but, you know, there's that. We're being pastorally censored, the fact that half the people in the room don't even believe in God, right, when we yeah. talk about yeah. this stuff. So yeah. it's like, okay, you're here. I know you're here. Let's talk about this stuff in a sane and rational way, but like you can, and we always say like, every time we bring up sensitive, you know, morality issues, we love you. We know that God loves you. God does not make mistakes. God can love you in your crosses. Jesus Christ took up his cross so mm-hmm. that you would know you're never mm-hmm. alone in your cross. But then it's like, you don't accept this. Therefore be gone. And you're like, oh, well, I can't even get a
2: hearing. But, sorry. I, I, should, I, um, I put that, I'm a little out of the podcast game. Uh, that was, that was like way, way too broad. I think the structure of the American Catholic Church, for the most part, is still that of a sacraments factory. So just let's just get your things. Let's 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 cross this thing off.
0: Let's get you confirmed.
2: Yeah, and then we got this, and we've got to keep all. We have to keep all of our records, and let's have just bad, like bad lighting, and you know all of our buildings and <laughs> dark, dark colors that just drives Luke crazy, like the room I'm in right now. Um, just brown and dark green everywhere. Um, it's because college kids are gross. I'm sure they can just get things on dirty, but um, the, like, are we creating areas or even the, uh, like the, like the, an ability to even for, for like all of us to understand that, like you're going to go through some really broken things and you need a place and the church is a place where you can start to be accompanied as you work through all of that. It's, and I don't even think I'm mean, necessarily the necessarily church is where you do the work, but it's where the accompaniment can, can't happen. And I think we, because our structures aren't necessarily built to do that, although I think you're right when it comes to this ministry, and I think other people are, this is slowly changing. It, um, I think that's one of the reasons why when we talk about this, it ends up just being about ideas, or we're either trying to convince ourselves about the, the truth, because it's just, you know, hard to navigate it, or we just say, this is crazy, right? because there's just, it's, it's, it's almost like, I feel like in order to really start to dive in to this stuff, we have to, which is one of the things I think that, that some entrepreneurs are trying to do. We have to change the way that even like, like how some of our buildings are structured in order to, in order to do this stuff.
1: <laughs> I guess when I think about accompaniment, I, I write about this in the book, but I think about my own experience coming into the church. So, okay. So for for about a decade in my twenties, I was pretty much an ideologue. Right. And for me, the idea of women not being ordained was a deal breaker. So, um, that's, that really kept me away from the Catholic church for sure. And then, you know, I eventually kind of reached this crisis point. And so then I was interested in Catholicism and doing RCIA and, and I would meet with my friend, Stephen, who's now a priest, um, and a former student of mine. And I would bring all my hard questions to him. Right. Would, and there were all the feminist objections, you know, so I'd bring like, okay, contraception tell What's up with this? This seems crazy. You mm-hmm. know, what about this? What about this? You know? And he was just so patient. I think he was a seminarian at the time. And he was like, and he would just like patiently tell me, you know, you would answer my questions very lovingly and patiently. And sometimes I didn't like his answers, you know, that kind of like, okay, well, thanks. You know, <laughs> then I would go my merry way or whatever. Um, but then, you know, fast forward a couple of years and like when I first became Catholic, I guess to backtrack, when I first became Catholic, I I still had quite a lot of doubts and I my feminist objections had not been totally resolved. I wasn't sure about the contraception thing, although I got knocked I got pregnant like right away becoming Catholic, haha. Right, you know, insert your joke about Anyway, whatever. Bunny but rabbits. that actually was helpful because then that suspended the whole contraception thing for me to, like, actually have time to just be Catholic. Yeah. Um, the nice thing about getting pregnant is that you don't have to worry about getting pregnant. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> it's very true. Um, but, you know, I, I skipped the line, like, for us men in the creed, you know, I was still, like, you know, kind of like, I was in, but I was kind of, like, one foot out, right? Um, and, you know, eventually I came you know, through a process of the sacraments working through prayer, just through conversion, right? Which is, which God is doing, like God is doing this conversion and it takes a while. I eventually kind of came to accept some of the arguments that I would not have been able to hear a few years ago. You know, when, when Stephen was my student, we would debate women's ordination and he would give me these like, you know, wonderful Catholic arguments. And I just could, I wouldn't, I was not in a place to receive them because I was like, no way. I'm not even going to consider that that might be the case. So you might be meeting someone who's in that space, right? Who's like, suddenly like, "Whoop!" you don't agree with me. Like, boom, that doesn't, I'm, I'm not listening to anything else you have to say. Right. But then you don't know years later, what kind of seeds you might be planting. Right. And so I think, I think sometimes, when we think about outreach and accompaniment, even evangelization, like there's always this human tendency to want to control things, right? To want to see results, like quick results. But I think this kind of stuff, it's a long game. Like God plays the long game with people and with souls. And we just kind of have to be like patiently and lovingly receiving people who come our way and ask something of us, but then also like turning them back over to God, you know, and being attentive and present in the ways that we're being called to be. Um, even though in the short term that, you know, that might not see fruits or you might not ever see the fruits, you know, yeah.
2: I only, um, have a limited amount of time. So I, I just want to like, I do have sure. like a random question that I kind of want to ask I'm a hard return, but, but before I say that, before I say that, I, I, I just want to say that was such a great, uh, train of thought there. That was way better than anything that like I said. So just take all, all the crap, let us said, go and just, you know, i <laughs> say that and it's fine. Um,
0: that's the show the show is just that yes
2: yeah, it's just that what is it like being in academia in a thing like this where you're talking about these things that are such tough personal con- contentious issues like like this is not you know kind of being like uh oh like i still use like a SWOT analysis and everyone's was like what you idiot you know like like deeply embedded into people's hearts and minds and the things that they care about right now and it's like almost i mean i think the big hot thing is abortion right now but like this dominates the cultural it's like you know if like anything this um sets the tone for the cultural zeitgeist right now and uh, you're a voice in this that is not going along with the cultural um narrative what is that even like
1: <laughs> i think i have i've been somewhat protected in that i I tend to talk and write on this issue explicitly from a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. So people outside of Christendom just already think I'm a wacko anyway because I think that like Jesus was God. I've only, I have only gotten hate from Christians. Mm. And so I've been pro, I've been protested once at Hope College. It was a Protestant college, but fairly progressive. At my prior institution, George Fox, you know, there were students who certainly disagreed with me, but I didn't, you know, and colleagues. But I I never got, You know, the president was very supportive, and I had—even the people who disagreed with me, you know, I had good working relationships with them, so I I didn't get flack at all there. I've actually got—the most um, hate I've gotten is from actually really kind of conservative Catholics who don't like the fact that I even— sometimes use the term feminist you know um or that i wear pants apparently so every you time know, you there's...
0: wear pants the blessed virgin mary cries I'm just... yes so <laughs> i'm
1: like i mean i'm like should i take them off that also seems bad you know <laughs> but anyway um i had
0: a woman say that I'm... to me once every time you, a woman wears pants the virgin mary cries and i was like oh gosh it's intense she must have hated Joan of Arc.
1: Yeah, exactly, right. I'll be totally honest that I'm like, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what Notre Dame will be like. I mean, I, you know, the McGrath Institute hired me knowing the things that I write and speak about. I do think tone is really important, and it's that's something I, I really try to do well. I don't always do well because I also have this kind of spicy side, and sometimes I just like to make jokes and be a little crass. But, you know, on this topic, that can backfire, and so I'm still figuring that out, you know, and... I don't know if being here will open me to more criticism um, because I I did feel very protected in my, in my prior Mm -hmm. institution, but Notre Mm -hmm. Dame is also this massively huge place. So I don't, you know, I, I honestly, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the future holds, but yeah. I mean, there are moments, I guess, where I have a crisis of confidence and I just feel like this is too big. I'm just like, why am I writing about this? this is such a huge issue. It's so painful for anyone who really cares about it. These are real people. You know, what if I, you know, I'm sure I'm wrong about something. What if I'm doing harm? You know, that sort of stuff. Like, um, but I, I guess the, those moments are also good because I, I, having been an ideologue before, I'm, I think I'm actually pretty aware now much more self-aware about not becoming an ideologue again Mm -hmm. um so i'm 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 actively praying about um the ideas i hold and the ideas i write about and i'm i'm actively doing research you know and trying to make sure that i'm i'm not just jumping on a bandwagon you know
0: i think that's awesome i think that's awesome that's the that's the sober clear vision that a convert brings Right. Like I can be like, I'm going to go to war with Protestants over the Eucharist. And then you have a convert, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's a whole thing called atheism. It's a lot it's a lot more comfortable. It's a lot it's safer to debate Protestants than it is to debate atheists. You know, and it's you know, and so we can still become insular in our and all this stuff. I I just find that so funny. Um, One thing I was doing this morning, I was reading your book. uh, I was reading about. contraception and how it leads to cancers and you had talked about this in the book and i was reading it out loud to my wife and my 10 year old daughter was sitting there she's a voracious reader and so she was reading i think artemis fowl and uh (laughs) i was reading this to my wife and she's like dad don't stop keep reading um but it was crazy you you did this thing at one point where you're talking about like with with contraception these things increase your your risk of um, breast cancer and cervical cancer they go up but also there's a trade-off that they found that using contraceptives also lead to a decrease in uh was it ovarian cancer and Mm -hmm. uh and so it's like is that a fair trade-off and then you Mm -hmm. then you and i was sitting there i was reading i was like huh how do i make sense of this and you said well the trade-off is pregnancy like if you get pregnant (laughs) These things also decrease your chances of getting Mm -hmm. ovarian cancer also decrease, but you also are not increasing your ability to get breast cancer, your ability to get cervical cancer. And the more you hammered home at that end, like to me, that is the most, uh, I mean, incredible because this stuff isn't told to women. Yeah. Do you think my 6-year-old yes. girls walking around in their little booty shorts <laughs> who don't even know their booty shorts <laughs> because it's just shorts to them, which is driving mm-hmm. me insane. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My buddy just said, "No, just pretend like they're like Aborigines and this is just their custom dress, you know, like if you were to go to a culture that is all topless, you wouldn't think anything of it on on day 3. You just have to have that mentality." And I'm like, "But you can see their butt. And they're in the youth room." Uh, so anyway, the <laughs> these people on contraception, it drives me insane. My precious couch where are their fathers uh but the uh (laughs) the uh the idea of it is like this is liberation like this is this is the type of knowledge that can liberate a woman from being a a slave to her libido but also a slave to oh i don't know billion dollar companies that sell Mm. these things to little girls that tell them that every time you have an irregular period or you know fear of getting pregnant just take this pill and magically it'll all go away like Mm -hmm. This opens eyes. Like, oh, actually, I know pregnancy can do a lot of violence to a woman's body. It's it's crazy, you know. Hip spread things happen, but you know what? Um, it can also be incredibly healing and get you in touch with your body. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah,
1: I mean, preg- pregnancy does really suck. I will say. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have really hard. I have. I have really hard pregnancies, you know, but even, but even that, you know, I mean, I just the, the power of pregnancy and the pregnant body and creating another human being. I mean, it's just so intense and amazing, even though it's also really grueling. Right. Um, and there's something almost a little bit paternalistic about like, Oh, we want to protect women from pregnancy because it's hard, you know, you I know, mean, like as mm-hmm. if women shouldn't, take on kind of, you know, some forms of heroic suffering for important reasons. Um, yeah, the, the birth control thing is, I mean, it's so, you know, I think I say, that, I say this in the book, too, I make this, you know, at least this, this passing comment that, like, I think one of the reasons perhaps our society is so, like, blasé about sterilizing gender dysphoric youth is that, well, we've basically been, you know, kind of temporarily sterilizing our teenage girls for decades, right? Like, we've been pumping synthetic hormones into them to disrupt their physiology so it's like this is just kind of taking it to the next level um because that's already become so palatable we're already
0: used to viewing ourselves as infertile beings until we will mm-hmm. to turn the spigot back on you know and mm-hmm. it is weird It it's like it's this to me this is the end game of a cartesian worldview. like in the end the body is just mere matter that i get to shape and mold according to my conscious ideas and the body always loses. You know, it's not my mind that needs healing, hope, forgiveness, patience. It's the body loses. So I'm going to fill my body with chemicals, uh, synthetic hormones. I'm going to do all this stuff and pretend like there are no repercussions. And if you subscribe to a dualistic human person, then, yeah, maybe you can get away with that. But if reality is we're not a strictly dualistic but we're a composite, then, then what you do to the body matters. It deeply matters.
1: And people, I think a lot of people aren't, it's not that they're not thinking about that. It's that they're actively being deceived about yeah. the the real side effects right. about this stuff. I mean, even if you just go to Planned Parenthood's website and look for their, you know, the side effects they list for gender affirming hormones, as they call them. You know, they'll list some, like, kind of pretty benign kind of side effects, pretty cosmetic side effects. Yeah. But they don't mention, like, organ atrophy or, like, increased risks of cancer or, like, bone density loss and, like, all these other, Or the fact that, like, this is a crazy thing, too. Like, for a woman to be on testosterone, like, it increases her, like, vocal cords in a way that, like, don't really fit her physiology anymore. So it kind of just ruins your voice. Like, you're not able to sing the way that you were able to. Some women you know, even it becomes painful to talk like just all these crazy side effects that you wouldn't even think about, but mm. you know, they're not, they're not being told. Um, and there's so much money to be made. So like much. you mentioned, like there's so, I just think like like medicalizing a healthy child for life, I think how much money can be made on this. Yeah. Like they're, they, you know, uh.
0: they've convinced us to take medicine, recurring medicine. Remember Chris rocks, brilliant treatment. Uh, why haven't they cured AIDS? Cause there's money in the treatment, not in the cure. Right now. Imagine mm. if you get treatments for health to make yourself
1: malfunction. Yeah, exactly. The healthy doing. body has to be treated and constantly disrupted because yeah. it, it's trying to heal itself. You know, if you, yeah.
2: yeah. Hey, yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry. To, I'll cut this short, but yeah, you're good. Um, I, gotta go. yeah. I gotta go. I gotta go the other we'll side do. of campus, but, uh, this, this is I fun. gotta go too. Uh, oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you for uh, allowing me to, uh, uh, come on, my own show, Gomer. I, I really appreciate it.
0: <laughs> this will be the yeah. last time, Luke. You're being replaced with Doctor Larry Chap.
2: It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Like, Patreon uh, check still catches. <laughs> sure does. Sure does. Luke.
1: Hey, if you wanna, if you want Hey, Luke, you can swing back okay. by and grab a book if you want yeah. if you have time. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean,
0: okay. like, right. probably. Like you go, Luke, and then I'm so. going to wrap it up with her. Okay. All right, cool. All right, thanks. All right, audience, was good talking to you and dear god let him leave uh no i'm just kidding uh yeah so uh um, the book the genesis agenda a christian theory i like that the, the sneaky little subtitle there
1: it's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a christian was- theory yeah, that was my editor's idea. I like it. I, I, I'm generally opposed to subtitles. I just didn't want it to be like the genesis of gender. Why gender has totally gone crazy <laughs> and was war- ruining the world as we know it in three small steps. Whatever, you know. I, I miss the 18th yeah.
0: century or, seven, or 19th century <laughs> right. titles where they give you two or three
1: titles. <laughs> like it's a it's a paragraph, yeah, right? Yeah.
0: The origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of the favored races <laughs> or survival of the fittest. Whichever. Whichever you want. Yeah, like
1: I, I can't decide. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. It was
1: just um, fun. I know. It, it was
2: really to meet you.
1: Yeah, I know. Um, it's yeah, so good it so to fun. meet you in yeah, person.
2: I'm just, and I'm, I'm sorry that I'm just laying in and out, but I don't, I don't have a life during my No,
1: I loved here, it. So, yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, thanks. I'll see you. He says
0: bye. <laughs> I keep forgetting that he can't hear it. Like, I shouting, <laughs> Like I'll shout louder into your ears. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I don't even know what the hell I was talking about. See, this is the ADHD plague.
1: The crazy titles. Crazy titles. You were trying to blurb my book, yes, and I then was. I just, like, interrupted yeah, no, you. no, it was
0: beautiful. <laughs> it was, it was, it's the feminine genius. Uh, no, but it's funny. Like, the non-denominational evangelicals, they got the best names for stuff. You know, there's, like, one word, like, purple. And you're like, what is purple? Oh, it's this. You know, they do that all the time, and I'm always trying to steal uh, their ideas, but it doesn't always work. So what's the next step for you? Um, uh, are you taking this? Are you going to? obviously you're going to be writing about this for the church life journal
1: mm-hmm. um and doing yeah. things there are
0: you are you going to be traveling and speaking on this is that a big part of it are you doing parishes Are you going to keep it academic what's your thoughts
1: <laughs> well i'm i'm gonna do a little bit do of... you
0: want to come to my church is what i'm saying
1: I'm here to invite you. <laughs> maybe maybe um i yeah i need to figure out the speaking thing because i'm at i'm in the for the first time i'm in this weird situation where I'm getting more requests than I can do and want to do. So I kind of want to pull back, especially this first year moving to a new place and just make sure I'm, I'm home a lot and figure out what the heck my new job is. So my plan is definitely to be doing more writing. I'm doing a lot of interviews related to the book. And I, I'd like to start writing some essays on things that I feel like uh, I didn't get to in the book you know, that are even more topical. Like what? Um, so I'm, so one thing I really want to write about, um, because when I wrote the book, which was like over a year ago, right? Um, we're getting this huge wave of detransitioners and the, well, the first, the kind of the new, co- the, this like new emerging cohort of young people who are um, seeking treatment at gender clinics yeah. um, were overwhelmingly female. But the, then there was this kind of like second rush of, of young men as well. And so I think my book doesn't really get into the male experience of, of detransition and transition as much as I'd like to. And I've been listening to some first person accounts from male detransitioners that I think are really interesting. Um, and so I want to interview some and, and write about that. And there's also a lot of interesting things happening in Europe. So many European countries like Sweden and the UK are actually um, pulling back on the medicalization um, for gender dysphoria for young people. And so there's there's good things happening in Europe that America is not paying attention to. And so I'd like to also write about that. Um,
0: yeah, they're scaling way back on the use of drugs oh, and yeah. interventions in people.
1: Because they're looking at the evidence, right? And that's the thing. Like, if you actually look at the scientific evidence, like it becomes pretty clear that um this is experimental and there's not good evidence to show that the supposed benefits outweigh the very real risks of this kind of medicalization
0: yeah i mean when yeah. you use the same medicine to stop puberty now, i mean just think about that phrase stopping puberty like what kind of damage uh, we don't even know we don't even know the damages that we're doing um but that it's the same thing that they use in prisons for chemical castration like what is it Lupatrone, mm-hmm. Lupatrone, lupatron, whatever but uh, they don't even want to talk about it. They don't even want to admit it. They don't even want to go there. Um, you know what else I'm sad about? I'm sad that we didn't get to talk just about English literature. <laughs> I, you had made well, a comment. Have... You made a comment about that with Fred, like, "Well, I was an English lit major," or you, you like threw something out there, and I was like, "Oh, we should talk about King Arthur. <laughs> Let's talk about Chaucer." <laughs>
1: Well, I actually don't know much about English literature because I do have a PhD in English, but I just studied, um, like, feminist literary criticism and women's writing and stuff. <laughs>
0: it was funny, I was so. talking to someone, they said, isn't it funny how everyone who is, like, an English, like, a professor of English literature or whatever, they're all the gender studies people? Oh, totally. Why? Yep. Why? Why is it there not enough Chaucer to go around?
1: Well, because, in a nutshell, um, the, the kind of dominant... I guess worldview in literary studies is that there is there is no worldview because everything's reality is linguistically constructed. So you kind of need to like borrow a worldview to read a text. And so you're trained to take a critical theory and that's your lens through which you read the text. Because you don't want to actually appeal to something like an actual worldview. So you kind of borrow a, a worldview lens to read. And so To do graduate studies in English means that you're also immersing yourself in critical theory, including gender theory and queer theory.
0: So so that you can enter into their world. Interesting. Interesting. It's all word games. It's all word
1: games. Yeah. Oh man. See, this is the stuff that I
0: would love to talk to. Okay. Well, you know. Well, let's
1: just do it again. This is fun. Like, I like talking to you. Next time, maybe I'll not be late. Lock myself out of my office, you know.
0: <laughs> the funny thing is I'm also going on vacation right after this. Not after this okay. talk, but today. Yeah, yeah. And so I have, like, so much work to do. And <laughs> the fact that we're yeah, doing this, I'm i like, know I'm going to get in trouble by someone here.
1: <laughs> All right.